Let's read from 1 Kings chapter 8. We're going to read from verse number 22. Uh, it is, of course, the occasion when Solomon is praying in the dedication of the, of the newly uh, established temple in Israel at that time. And so verse 22, And Solomon stood before the altar of the Lord in the presence of all the congregation of Israel and spread forth his hands toward heaven. And he said, Lord God of Israel, there is no God like thee in heaven above or on earth beneath who keepest covenant and mercy with thy servants that walk before thee with all their heart. Who hast kept with thy servant David my father that thou promised him. Thou speakest also with thy mouth and hast fulfilled it with thine hand as it is this day. Therefore now, Lord God of Israel, keep with thy servant David my father that thou promised him, saying, There shall not fail thee a man in my sight to sit on the throne of Israel so that thy children take heed to their way, that they walk before me as thou hast walked before me. And now, O God of Israel, let thy word, I pray thee, be verified, which I speakest unto thy servant David, my father. And will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold the heaven, and the heaven of heavens cannot contain thee. How much less this house that I have builded. Yet have thy respect unto the prayer of thy servant, and to his supplication, O Lord my God, to hearken unto the cry and to the prayer which thy servant prayeth before thee today, that thine eyes may be open toward this house night and day, even toward the place of which thou said, My name shall be there, that thou mayest hearken unto the prayer which thy servant shall make toward this place. And hearken thou to the supplication of thy servant and of thy people Israel, when they shall pray toward this place, and hear thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And when thou hearest, forgive. Amen. May God be pleased to use and bless his word to our hearts today. I want to move on in our studies, having really considered uh, in some detail the subject of God's immutability, the fact that God does not change to consider the subject of God's relationship to space. And I'm not referring to space in terms of outer space and the stars and the moon, although it's involved, but just in general terms, how does God reveal his relationship to space? You know, we speak of God in terms of being infinite. And when it comes to time, and we take that forward to think of God's eternality, uh, God is not governed or limited by space. He is infinite. And of course, to be infinite is to be without limits or boundaries. And so when it comes to time, God is not bound. He is the eternal God, the eternal I am. Before time, if like outside of time, and yet stepped into time. And in a very similar way, same things can be said regarding God's relationship to space. Now, I'm going to get you working right at the start today. So get your Bibles out, you're at 1 Kings chapter 8. Can you look at that passage you just read, verse 22 to 30, and can you see things in that passage that would speak to the subject of how God relates to space? There's, there are several, if you like, hints in the passage. And so I want to get you working from the very beginning. You're going to work from the start. Paul. Okay, so there's the, the reference, the heavens cannot contain thee. And so that's, we'll come back to these things. That is a, a recognition that God is not limited by space. He's not bound by created space. He's outside space in that sense. It's what uh, Louis Burkhoff, the Reformed theologian, described as God's immensity. 
as God's eternality describes his state with time. God's immensity can be used to describe his relationship with space. He is outside and beyond space. And so we'll come back to that. Dan? Okay, so it's going to deal with God's faithfulness and God's promises and keeping his covenant. Uh, but there's, there's, there's something underlying that in this. Yeah, there's space. But yeah, the right line's down, but something more in terms of his relationship to space. What about verse 27? Yeah, George. Okay, so that's also part of this. So you've got God's immensity. He's not limited by space. And yet God is everywhere. It's also there. But there's something else here, Kent. And then there's John. Okay. So you've got the two reference there. Verse 27. Will God indeed dwell on the earth? And then verse 30, here thou in heaven thy dwelling place. And then verse 29, my name shall be there. And of course, the name of God does not just mean that his name, if you like, is above the door of the temple. It is the fact that God is there because God's name is everything whereby he makes himself known. It's synonymous with his presence. My presence shall be there. Okay, Mr. Shannon, do you have anything to add to that? You got it. It's very good. No, I don't want to make sure. Yeah, I, saw, I saw Ken's hands first. So you've got those, those three aspects here in this passage that describe God's relationship with space. And so you have all three here. You have immensity, omnipresence, and yet special presence. These are the terms that are used, again, to describe how God relates to space. He is not limited by space, yet he is everywhere in space. And yet the Bible also describes God being present in one place at a certain time. These are things that are, again, revealed in the word of God. I don't believe if men are going to uh, manufacture a doctrine of God, uh, they come up with these things. This is God's self-revelation. And so we find ourselves perplexed and confused because, again, we're not like God. But he reveals himself in these terms. Let's take each of these one at a time. Um, We'll spend probably most time discussing the matter of God's special presence But first of all, God is not limited by space. Uh, I said the term that's often used, and one that I prefer, is this idea of immensity. How do you describe how big God is? You don't. God cannot be described in terms of size or bigness. He is beyond big. You have the language here, verse 27. Behold, the heaven and heavens of heavens cannot contain thee and the idea is if again please this is a hypothetical situation uh, in, in our own finite lives but if we were to go beyond the created universe god would still be there just listen to that accept it and don't think too much about it because it will blow your mind 
We can't think in those terms. We are so finite. We are, we're, we're in this body right here and now. I can only stand here right now. I can't even stand here and in the back of the church at the same time. We are so limited by space, but God is not like that. And the passage tells us here, this is God's revelation of himself through the inspired words of Solomon here, that the heaven and heavens of heaven cannot contain God. It is incomprehensible. There is none like our God, Lord God, full of glory and majesty, God who is beyond and not limited by space. He is truly the infinite God. You see, if God is bounded or contained within some sort of space, he therefore is not infinite. And God, of course, being the eternal God, was eternally unbounded by space. He was God before space was made. And therefore the unchanging God is still not bound by space. I'm going to stop there and we're going to move on. Because these things are are really, they are so far beyond our comprehension. They must be stated. We must worship God in light of these things. Uh, But there are things that we will not properly understand. We state them and we can move on. Get done. And indwells you. So Dan's making the point again that the eternal God created the world, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the eternal God outside of time, created space. Uh, and yet, in the mercies of God and the gospel, the Spirit of God indwells us. That's beyond our comprehension, the indwelling of the Spirit of God in those terms. So uh, that's, that's the idea of immensity, and it is, it is a vast and, and deep subject. What then about the subject of God's omnipresence? Again, here, we have to be very, very careful. I think young people and children sometimes have the idea that, that God is like the air or like a gas. Uh, I remember back in, in, in science uh, class, I was probably in your training, maybe sixth or seventh grade, and uh, the, the teacher went to the corner of the room and sprayed some perfume, and he asked again, do you smell it yet? Do you smell it yet? The idea of the gas permeating the entire room until the far corner, I can smell it as well. And this idea that gas filling the space available to it. So gases do. It fills the, the given space. And people think, well, that's, that's what God's like. He, he fills the space given to him. But God is supremely pure spirit. God does not have any mass or volume. And so we, we've got to get away from this idea that God's like a gas that, that fills the space in this universe. There's no mass to God. Uh, Gas has a mass, but God does not have mass or volume. He is spirit. And that, again, is a a mysterious concept. And and part of the mystery comes also because other spirits are somehow bound by space. So then you get really, it just really gets very, very deep in that sense. Because no other spirit is omnipresent. And so somehow, and I use that word somehow because I don't know how, but somehow other spirits are bound by space in a way that God's not. The devil is not omnipresent. He cannot be everywhere at one point. The spiritual angels are in heaven right now. They're not in heaven and on earth. They're in one place. They're, they're bound by space in a way that God is not. And so we're not suggesting here that God takes up space. 
It's not the idea of God's omnipresence. God is not occupying space in that regard. Nor are we saying that part of God is here and another part is there. It's another idea that people have that God is so big that therefore he occupies every place in the universe because of his size. And again, we're, we're using finite language to describe the infinite God. All of God is everywhere at all times. And all of God is outside everywhere at all times. This is a God that is so far beyond our comprehension. It blows the finite mind when we come to think of these things. And so we are saying that God is everywhere present in all that God is at all times. We are not saying that everything is God. Again, there are some and they basically have a pantheistic or panentheistic view of God's. So the pantheists, well, creation is God's. The panentheists, well, the world is inside God in some way. Both those things are not taught in the, in the scriptures because God is separate from creation. God makes this world. There's a, a separation between God and his creation in that sense. The creation doesn't become God and God does not become the creation. So there's a distinction here. But turn across to Psalm 139. Because I, I took the time to kind of say what this is not. Because when you come to read the scriptures, then you'll see what the scriptures do describe God's omnipresence. And so why is it not this and it's not that? It still uses language that describes God's omnipresence. Psalm 139. Whether shall I go from thy spirit or whether shall I flee from thy presence? Verse 8 is, I believe, in referring to inaccessible places. If I ascend up into heaven, thou art there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, thou art there. And again, the language there is not so much heaven and hell as places of punishment or places of reward, but rather describing the, the inaccessible place of the world. The far heavens, you know, reaching to the stars or, or the deepest grave. Places that, as, as, as David is writing, he cannot get to. But though he cannot get to those places, God is there. They're inaccessible, but God's there. You've also got then, verse 9 and 10, what we might refer to as the uninhabited places of the world. If I take the wings of the morning, east and west, and dwell in the utmost parts of the sea, even there shall thy hand lead me, and thy right hand shall hold me. If I say, sure the darkness shall cover me, even the night shall be light about me. He's describing, if you like, all the potential scenarios. Well, maybe God's not there. Maybe he's not here. But he's saying, no, there's nowhere you can flee from the presence of the Lord. And he's attributing that, therefore, to God's knowledge of him. Again, that's the whole point of this particular psalm. Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou know my down sitting and my uprising. There's nowhere where I can hide from God. It's a statement, a clear affirmation of God's omnipresence. But then turn across to Proverbs chapter 15. Because one thing really begins to recur when we look at the practical application of God's omnipresence, you have Proverbs 15 and the verse number 3. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, beholding the evil and the good. Again, obviously God does not have eyes. It's an anthropomorphic term. 
to describe God in human form in such a way that we would see the discernment of God is in every place. Not only does God see, he discerns between evil and good when he sees. And so the language here is again of God's knowledge in light of his omnipresence. He is everywhere present and as such he knows everything everywhere and never makes a mistake. Never a wrong assessment of evil and good, but a perfectly accurate moral discernment at all times in every place. He is everywhere present. One other reference to kind of establish this further, and that's Jeremiah 23. Jeremiah 23 and the verse number 24. I've just selected three. There are others as well. I'm just taking take three uh, portions that describe God's omnipresence. But Jeremiah 23 verse 24. Can any hide himself in secret places that I shall not see him, saith the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, saith the Lord? I have heard what the prophet said. That prophesy lies in my name, saying, I have dreamed, I have dreamed. Again, the passage here is describing again the fact that, that Jeremiah is the true prophet of God, but there are these lying false prophets, and God is saying through Jeremiah, you can't hide. I see all things. I see and discern the lies of the false prophets. I hear their words. I even see their hearts. The omnipresence of God going, again, beyond space to discern not only actions, but motivations and intent of the person who is sinning against his great and holy name. So you see this together. We have, there are very clear affirmations of God's omnipresence, but they're regularly applied in terms of God's judicial discernment of right and wrong, good and bad, evil and righteousness. So properly, we do apply God's omnipresence to saint and to sinner alike. To sinner, fear God. To those outside of Christ who are still uh, living a life of rebellion against God, they should understand that all that they think and feel and do is not hidden to God. You cannot hide and escape the presence of God. He said, well, I don't want God in my life. You don't get that choice. God is in your life. The issue is, will you choose to ignore it or will you choose to act upon it? But God is there. But it's also words with regards to the saint. Yes, in one sense, it's a word of warning to us that we do not secretly grieve the Holy Spirit. With our words, our actions, in the private place, there's a recognition that that there's no place hid from God and it should should govern and control our hearts. We want to please God, not to grieve the Lord. And so the recognition again that God is everywhere means that we also cannot hide from God. You may hide from your, your wife, you may hide from your work colleagues, but you will not hide from God. It governs, at least to some degree, our response to the word of God. But more than that, that's the negative it's comforting to the saint of God that when someone may malign us and mistreat us and say things against us falsely for Christ's sake, we know that God sees our hearts. He sees in the secret place. And so we can have that clear conscience before God, no matter what they say, I know what is true in and of myself. And I'm righteous in the sight of God, not perfectly. Perfectly. 
but sincerely against the accusations, the false accusations of others. You get in a similar fashion, you get the language of the Sermon on the Mount. You pray in secret, you fast in secret, you, you, you tithe in secret, you, you do these things. And the Lord that what? Sees in secret. The Lord who discerns in every place shall reward thee openly. And though men may not commend you and say to you, well done on this or that, the other thing, God is not blind to those things. So keep on keeping on. Do what is right in the sight of God, though the skies fall down. Do what is right in the sight of God, because you know that God sees and discerns perfectly your very heart. So that's something regarding the statement of God's omnipresence. But even those two things, immensity and omnipresence, it doesn't do full justice to the language of the Bible regarding God's relationship with space. And so the third thing, we've got to think of this matter of God's special presence. It is certainly hinted at, of course, in the prayer of Solomon in 1 Kings chapter 8. Can God dwell on the earth? And yet he has a dwelling place. His name is there. We see all of those things. But please turn across to the New Testament, to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew chapter 18. Here we find the Lord himself asserting both the omnipresence of God at the same time as asserting his special presence. Matthew 18 verse 20. For where two or three are gathered together in my name, there am I in the midst of them. The context here is in terms of church discipline and the local church gathering to agree regarding a matter of discipline of a saint who's again fallen away from the things of righteousness and they are, they are properly disciplined and dealt with. That's the context of the passage. But it also does detail for us information regarding God's omnipresence and his special presence. You see, his omnipresence is implied for where? And the idea is wherever. Here? The church in Orlando? Our church in Indianapolis? Our church in Phoenix? Just because, I forget time zones for now, but just because we happen to meet at the same time does not mean that God has to choose where to be. He is everywhere at all times, wherever the people of God meet in his name. And yet at the very same time it says, there am I in the midst of them. Not just present in a generic sense because God is everywhere present, but present in a very particular sense, often termed with the words theologically, the special presence of God. God is there, if you like, with a purpose, with an intent. God is there to do something. If you like, it's a functional presence of God. That he's always present, but he comes in special times and places to be present in a very remarkable fashion. This idea of God being present in the gathering of the church is also confirmed over in 1 Corinthians chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 3. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 3 is detailing the issue of church growth. Uh, and God's blessing upon the growth of the church. God gives the increase. 
And it's in the language of laborers, the two, uh, two metaphors are used. We are God's husbandry, and we're also God's building. It's describing the fact of, of growth in the church. But it's in the context, not of the church universal, which always grows, but rather the work of laborers in building local churches, in establishing the, the presence of God in a local church. And so verse 16 says this, Know ye not that ye are the temple of God, and that the Spirit of God dwelleth in you? If any man defile the temple of God, him shall God destroy, for the temple of God is holy, which temple ye are. Now I understand people often read that in terms of the language of 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 19, which describes the believer's body as the temple of the Holy Ghost. But what you're seeing there is because the individual believer is a temple of the ghost, so the gathering of those believers can also be described as a temple of God. And the context of 1 Corinthians chapter 3 clearly points to the local church, the building of God, like the the field of God, the, the growth in no sense. And as Paul works his way through the logic, he is telling the church there in Corinth, do you not know that you are the temple of God? You are the dwelling place of God in the new covenant. No longer a temple in Jerusalem, but the local church becomes a temple of God. And when we gather, God comes among us and is here in his special presence. Therefore, Corinthians, watch your ways. Therefore, Corinthians, don't be so careless as to how you treat the church of God. With your mischief of gifts, with your abuse of the Lord's Supper, with your neglect of head coverings and all of those various things that he deals with. He's making the point. Why does local church worship and gathering matter? Because God's here. Because the Lord is here in his presence when the church meets together in Christ's name. And so what you understand then, when you're looking at this issue of God's special presence, you then see how some of the Old Testament passages have relevance to the church today. So let's turn back across to Genesis chapter uh, 28. And I've deliberately, I've gone back to front here. We could have started here, but I, I think it's helpful if you, if you can see in your mind and establish Matthew, 8, Matthew 18 and 1 Corinthians 3, establishing the fact and that God is present in his church. And then you go back to a passage like Genesis chapter 28. Uh, and you're going back to God's early revelation himself to the patriarchs. And verse 17 of Matthew, or sorry, verse 17 of Genesis 28, try again. Verse 17 of Genesis 28 says this. Jacob, or verse 16, Jacob awake out of his sleep. And he said, surely the Lord is in this place and I knew it not. And he was afraid and said, how dreadful is this place. This is none other but the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. And he calls the place Bethel, verse number 19, the house of God. Jacob is now aware that while God dwells in the heavens of heavens and has heaven as his dwelling place, the earth as a footstool, he now understands that God comes down into this world and is present in a special way at a certain place. And he was afraid. And turn across to Exodus chapter 3. Exodus chapter 3 in the verse number 5. The Lord is 
calling to Moses out of the midst of the bush. Verse number four said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here am I. And then verse five. And he said, draw not nigh hither, put off thy shoes from off thy feet. For the place whereon thou standest is holy ground. God is there at that place as he calls Moses to approach him. And the place is holy ground. The place is set apart at that time as the place where God is. And God comes and meets with Moses in the burning bush. You get similar language also then when you think of the tabernacle in Exodus chapter 25. You can just turn there and then we'll, we'll move on to final application. But Exodus 25 and the verse number 22. So what you're seeing here is you're seeing the, the development, if you like, of God's revelation of his special presence. He comes down to earth to reveal himself. He is, he is seen in creation, but God is able to come in a special fashion and meet particular people at a particular time in a particular place and reveals himself to them through his word. And then when you get to Exodus 25 and the verse 22, and there I will meet with thee and I will commune with thee from above the mercy seat. There's now a place designated on earth where God will commune with his people. It's upon that blood-sprinkled mercy seat. And so God is indicating his special presence with sinners is only through blood sacrifice and through atonement and reconciliation. Then God comes down and meets with his people. And how is this all worked out today? Right here, right now. We gather together in God's name upon the ground of redemption, upon the ground of blood sacrifice, and God is here. He is in the midst of us. He comes and meets with us. We commune with God, and God communes with us. We hear him in his word. We speak to him in prayer and song. We are gathered together in the presence of God. Therefore, what do we do about it? What is the practical application when we recognize that God is here in the house of God? What difference does that make to us? Does it make any difference? Does it have any impact upon our hearts? We see established in the word of God, God is here. So what do we do about it? Any ideas? Any suggestions? Anything in practical? Worship. Worship. To, to be in the presence of God with a stony, cold heart and not to worship God is to live as a practical atheist in the house of God. So you come and you sit in a pew and, and God's among us here. The Bible tells us that. He's, he's, not, he's not confined by these walls. He's, he's not a gas filling this space. He's everywhere present, but he's told us in the word of God, I'm specially present in the house of God. Therefore, it behoves us to worship his name in this place and to do so with all of our hearts, soul, mind, and strength. God is here. George? Yeah. Yes, it's a house of prayer. Now again, it doesn't mean we can't pray anywhere else. We can pray in secret. But again, we come to the house of God. Again, the, the application, the temple place. The temple was a house of prayer. And again, there's a quotation Isaiah says, for all nations. 
We are Gentiles. We're not bound by a temple in Jerusalem. We can pray to God right here, right now. Because God is present in this church. So again, we find ourselves, we must pray. Yeah, Dan? Yeah. I go throughout the, all the world, teaching them to observe all things I command you. And though I will be with you to the end of the age, He will be with us, as He promised the Holy Spirit. But there's your worship. But what are we doing? Rightly dividing the Word of God. Yeah. Yeah. So let me apply that. So Dan's making the point of the, the connection of the Great Commission, and I'll be with you. So the commission is worked out in churches, and that's the point of the Great Commission. So you. You go, you make disciples, you teach them all things God commanded, they've been baptized, been gathered in the church, and that's a sense of the Great Commission is God is with his developing, growing church as they go from place to place. And so in many ways, the local church becomes a vehicle of the Great Commission. Partly, sinners come in, they hear the word of God, they're converted, but also in the sense that saints are equipped to go out. Missionaries, ministers, but also local uh, members in their own localities. Uh, they're, they're equipped because they know God is here, God equips by his spirit, and then we go out. So, I mean, there's a connection there. There is. What about our attitude? How does it impact your Sunday morning or your Saturday nights? How does it impact what you do at 10 minutes to 11 on the Lord's Day morning? How does it impact some of those practical areas? Not being legalistic. But surely, we must prepare ourselves. I'll text this in then. I'll, I'll Repent and believe Yeah, so we, we make sure that we come here in Christ. As we'll see in the application of the gospel, we, we, we ensure that we are prepared to be in the Lord's presence by being in Christ. It's important. But we also, yeah, Yeah, I think if you go, if, I, if you allow me to, to use my homeland, if you happen to have an audience with the monarch in, in London, you're given a long and extensive list of instructions to how to behave yourself. Okay, you, you can fight about that, it's not for the point right now, but that long list, well, he's just a man, he is just a man, okay? But you've got a long list of instructions how you behave yourself in the presence of a monarch. We've got the Bible. We are not at liberty to do whatever we please in the house of God. We must make sure that the words that we use in prayer and in song and in preaching are according to God's word. We we can't play fast and loose when it comes to our worship. We we can't invent new ideas that may appeal to popular man. We've got to say, well, what does the Bible say what we should do in church today? How does the Bible dictate how we treat our Sabbath day? How does the Bible govern all of these things? Uh, it's, it's really that recognition, and amen, because it's that recognition that we're here to obey the Lord, because the Lord is here. Mr. Shannon, you were... Well, I was just going to say, I think you ought to give thanks and be grateful that we've got this day from the Lord. Yeah, and I... <laughs> amen. So, like, a gratitude, I thought down here, inside of joy. So, we... we so often when you think, well, God is here, and we're like Jacob, and rightly so, we realize this is a dreadful place. This is a place that we must come with reverence and, and fear. And, and as a saints of God, that's still true in the New Testament. That's not just an Old Testament thing. There is a recognition that we're coming into God's presence. But what a mercy. 
that we're a bunch of filthy, rotten sinners, and yet God is still prepared to meet with us because of his son. And if that does not provoke joy in our souls, again, we we don't understand God's presence upon blood sacrifice, and we don't understand the privilege of being in the house of God. And let's be honest, don't put your hands up, but I'll put my hand up. How often we forget that. And if we're tired and weary, the week has gone past, it's been a long week. Do I have to come to church twice today? Do I have to spend my whole day in God's presence? Surely I just want to rest and stay in my bed and sleep. You can come where God is today. Not in the omnipresence of God in that sense, but where God says, I'm going to come and I'm going to do something here. God is not specially present to do nothing. He comes in his special presence to act in some functionary fashion and right here, right now, to reveal himself to us in his word and to receive the praise that we offer in Christ's name. It is a glorious thing to say God is here. And may it elevate our hearts in God's presence today. May we indeed rejoice and be glad at so great salvation that allows us to meet with God and God to meet with us. So that's something regarding the special presence of God and the the general subject of God's relationship to space. It's not abstract. It provokes worship and glory and praise unto our great God. Yeah, George. Yeah, so. Yeah, so that's an important point. So, George is making the other observation that God can remove. And so, Ichabod in the Old Testament, and you've got the warnings of the candlestick being removed in seven churches if they continue in, in unbelief. And, folks, let's be honest. We live in a nation with many, many people professing to be Christians meeting in Christian churches. And yet if they are not meeting in God's name, that is in the way that God has revealed himself, then God is not there. And so we've got to watch our own hearts to make sure that we are not professing to know God's presence. Because we think, it, well, we, we believe God is here. We must make sure that we know the grounds whereby God is present here. Blood sacrifice, the preaching of Christ Jesus and him crucified, the exaltation of the word and the ordinances and the way that God has commanded. These are the things that marks a true church. And again, I'm not saying we're not the only true church. By no means, there are many, many true churches in many denominations. That's not my point. My point is that God does a standards, though. And just saying your church does not make you a church. And God's presence with his people who meet in his name. So let's... Still our hearts that seek God's face. We're going to come to worship God very soon here in the house of God. Ensure that your heart is ready. That your desire and your burden is to meet with the Lord today. Let's all bow together in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you again for your word to our souls today. Help us at this time to again rejoice and be glad in your grace and your presence toward us. Help us, O Lord, to again delight in the gospel. To delight And so great salvation purchased by Christ Jesus. Help us to come to worship, to rejoice with trembling today. In Jesus' name, amen.